This show contains movie spoilers and swearing. coming for you too. Sure you will. And I'll be waiting. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before. Where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful and see the show, it's really good. The brutal. I want Tom Cody. And the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. of 48 Hours, Universal Pictures presents Michael Paré, Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, and Amy Madigan in a Walter Hill film, Streets of Fire. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Bite Size Cinema. I'm your host, RJ McCready, and for this episode, I'm going to be taking you guys back to a year in 1984 to look at Walter Hill's very underrated movie, which is called Streets of Fire, which some of you may or may not know. We're going to show that some love today. And joining me for the show today is Court Syops from Cinema Syops Podcast. Court, welcome to the show. Yeah, so we were supposed to do this about two weeks ago, and um, my dumbass overslept because I stayed up way too late. <laughs> and just like Andrew WK, I may have partied just a little too hard. And the next thing I know, it's like 40 minutes later than we're supposed to record. And I wake up and message RJ. Yeah. My crappy alarm didn't work. And I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. I just rolled out of bed. Hey, I can still go. I can still go. I could do this. And you're like, nah, I got some plans because you're six hours ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're like, I got some things I got to do. And I'm just like, oh, I feel like 
such a jerk and i just like profusely apologized for like ever i think for like the last two weeks since we had to reschedule i was apologizing well and then, and then i was like i was i was in the garden and my missus was going is everything okay i was just trying to pour a bit of water over court because he's feeling really bad he's really feeling really fucking bad actually about not making it today you know <laughs> i'm like i'm going court it's okay don't worry about it it's all right we do it another time <laughs> Well, part of uh, part of just the way my brain is wired, like it, I get this anxiety for stuff like that, and like when guilt racks me, it really racks me. And you just kind of saw, like I wasn't holding it back and I wasn't filtering it. I was just kind of like being me. That's just like pure, like that's the state of worry that I just kind of live in. That I do a really good job of hiding when I'm on mic. <laughs> ah, that's okay, mate. I'm just doing that. Yeah, it's all right. Cool. That's fine. We'll we'll do it another time. That misses is says the same. Why are you jumping up and down cur cursing? Because Corp Sarge is just fucking let me down, that's why. <laughs> but I'm here. You got you got me you, you got me right now. I've got you yeah, I've got and you all we'll be doing this movie. <laughs> I've got you all to myself because I, I whilst we're on this subject, because we're you know, putting all these cards on the table. I posted on uh bite size, I got you coming on to the show. There's old Gary Hills trying to step in there as well. He's like, hey, I like Streets of Fire too. And I'm like, Gary, this man, I want court sarps all to myself. Gary, if you're listening, mate, I'm very sorry. It's really caught to myself today, that's all. <laughs> well, I actually did uh, Streets of Fire on Cinema Psyops quite a while ago. And yeah. Gary was the guy that I had guesting because he knows as much about walter hill stuff as just about any of our fellow podcasters and street to fire is like a i don't know it's almost sort of like how ricky has his thing for fan of a paradise i think street to fire may be the thing that gary has for like the walter hill specific films you know yeah. like i think that may be the one that he loves the most and i can totally see why because and i'll, I'll once we start getting into actually talking about the film this is probably the pinnacle of what is a Walter Hill movie. Like, this is so many elements of all the other Walter Hill movies that make them great, just packed into one film. It's like a Cliff's Notes of Walter Hill's entire career, almost. Yeah. I've got to agree with you as well, yeah, because I'd say this is probably my go-to film. Um, without realising it's my go-to movie when I only discovered it about five years ago. And, of course, I knew about, you know, uh, The Warriors... And that was probably one of Walt Hill's mainstream movies that did really well. And when you talk about The Warriors, most people say, yeah, I know that movie, it's great. And then I looked into Southern Comfort and The Long Riders and 48 Hours and all these other great movies. And then I, it's just almost like uh, this movie's just like the one that's been forgotten about. And then I watched it and I was like, oh my God, how have I missed this film? It's just like, it's just everything that I want from a, from a film, you know, and it's... It's an, it's an amazing movie that needs a little bit more recognition, I think. Well, and I kind of stumbled backwards into Walter Hill because I got obsessed with a bunch of his movies without even knowing it was all the same guy. Yeah. You know, like the same person involved with it. And, you know, like, I think probably the earliest film that I can think of being, like, super obsessed with from Walter Hill was Crossroads. And that was the film that actually got me playing guitar. Oh, well, you know, okay, yeah. That that cut and head sequence between Steve Vai and Ralph Macchio yeah. towards the end when they're playing. I'm like, man, you can do that with a guitar? You can make a guitar sound like that? 
And that's what really got me obsessed with wanting to play. I'm talking like 10, maybe 11 years old or around the time that I had seen that. And I had seen like edited versions on cable of like 48 hours or another 48 hours. And I loved both of those movies. And you just kind of get this certain flavor with Walter Hill where it's like this almost alternate reality that it's so close to our own. It's just a little more grittier. It's a little more grimier. And things just seem a little bit, bit more like nothing's going to ever be okay in Walter Hill movies. But it all feels like the reality that, you know, you're you're living at that time. Like, yeah. It's like a snapshot of like the 80s where a lot of them take place. And so I, I would watch these movies. And then after I started really paying attention to directors and things like that, when I got a little older, like in, you know, like probably about like 13 or so, I really started paying attention to certain actors or directors and, would start trying to follow their work. And it's about the time that I found Streets of Fire. It just it, it came on cable one afternoon when I had like summer vacation off of school and I watched it and it was one of those ones where it would replay, you know, multiple times a day on like an encore or something like that. Like, you know, it would it would just keep coming on. And I probably watched it multiple times and I completely fell in love with it. And it was this film that made me realize that directors can be sort of like auteurs almost you know at that at that really young age where i'm yeah. like you can really just kind of follow someone's whole entire career and see how they develop and everything and it wasn't until probably watching it with my wife yesterday for the show that i really realized that this is the most walter hill film that has ever walter hill <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i get that i was the same or probably the same with john carpenter um, I think I discovered John Carpenter before, or probably discovered Walter Hill, but I didn't realise Walter Hill was a guy that produced so many movies. So I'd probably seen The Warriors, and the fact that it was directed by Walter Hill probably went over my head. I just watched The Warriors as a good movie, and then I got a little bit older into my teens, and I started to think, well, hang on a second, uh, a bit like John Carpenter. If, these John Carpenter films seem seem to have John Carpenter's name on the top, so it's like John Carpenter's, um, you know, the thing, or you know, Escape from New York. Um, and then I sort of noticed Walter Hill, and I thought, hang on a second, he's got the same. These movies have the same sort of aesthetic to it. Um, so let's check this out, see what else he's done. And then I noticed Streets of Fire. And the interesting thing with Streets of Fire is that. Um, I actually listened to the soundtrack before I watched the movie, and I was I was thinking, man, if this soundtrack, if this movie is as good as this soundtrack, then this is going to be an awesome film. And God Almighty, I put it on, and I thought, yeah, this it, it didn't disappoint me at all. It did everything that he wanted wanted it to do. And I think I've said this before on my show. Um, if if a soundtrack is can be just as important to a movie as the story and the characters and I think with this film everything seems to tie up really well and yeah I, I'm just buzzing for it I never get bored of this film and I don't think I ever will I always seem to find something new that I never noticed before yeah whether it's a little piece of the soundtrack that's a guitar riff that Ry Coder plays whenever uh, Cody's on screen and yep. that's you know we kind of brought up the music but that's the really interesting thing that I noticed this time around uh, watching it too, I was like, there are two different soundtracks. It seems like Jim Steinman is doing all the scoring for the stuff that involves directly in Ellen's world. And then the minute she gets kidnapped and she gets dragged into like 
darker underbelly world of the bombers and that he's got to go get her. When Cody starts coming on screen and people are going looking for things or, or Cody's doing the investigation, it's all Ry Coder's uh, guitar work with the slide or, or various other riffs that he's doing. And that's all sort of like Cody's theme. So it's like, this is Cody's world. She's trapped inside Cody's world and he's got to get her out back to her Steinman really track world where everything fits into place and everything feels exactly ordered and how it's supposed to be as opposed to Ry Coder's very like improvisational, very loose style where you just never know the note that's coming next and you just kind of hope it's going to be in key. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd imagine like this being the 80s, Stevie Nicks was probably kicking around to shoot and they probably said, to them, can you just record a song for this movie as well? <laughs> it's like, yeah, sure, you know. Um, it's Oh, Steinman had to call in some favors on this for some of the vocals and he does he loves very powerful very very husky style voices he has a very specific style and it's extremely operatic and it's very heavily uh tracked like because there's multiple layers like of vocals of the same instrument and everything and he creates like these gigantic rock orchestral like opera sounds and that's totally helen's world where there's so many people working together to make that harmony happen mm. and yeah. they do a really good job of like like stacking her band when you actually see those performances to match the kind of sound that Steinman's able to to sort of create you know like that's why meat loves backup band is like 50 fucking people all the time because <laughs> jim Steinman really layers the tracks when he's working with them. yeah you see a crowd of 50 people in hollywood at that time where are you guys going there's a lot of extras for a movie no we're just uh meatloaf's backup band that's all <laughs> fucking hell <laughs> yeah. T tonight we're playing with Ellen Aim and the Attackers for yeah. this movie for Walter Hill, but normally we're Meatloaf's backup band. Why does he need seven guitars? Have you ever heard a Jim Simon track? Of course he needs seven guitars. <laughs> uh, Meatloaf Army's turned up for a movie. Oh man, that must be it. Must be a lot of fun to be on set as well. And um, also, is it uh, is it Lee Ving that's in this movie as well, wasn't it? He was kind of cool. Every time I see him on screen, he's like, is he the punk guitarist or lead singer from Fear, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he's the vocalist and I believe guitarist or bass player. I can't remember which of the two instruments that he plays off the top of my head. Uh, my wife recognized him as Mr. Body. Yeah, from Clue. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's he's one of those. He's just one of those actors who you know once once you notice him on screen, you can't not. You know, sort of look at him and think, oh, he's quite an interesting character, and he actually holds a bit of screen presence as well, as he, as you mentioned there with um, Clue. I thought he was great in that movie. You know, you just think, I want to see a little bit more of this character actually, and um, I could have actually seen him be the uh, as much as uh, was it Amy Madigan does a great job as um, Cody's psychic in this movie. I could have probably seen someone like Lee Ving be his psychic as well, someone with a little bit of attitude. Um, and generally, oh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, Amy Madigan's character was actually written for a man. Yeah. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but she basically just came in and owned the role and did it exactly as it was written and they just decided to let her play that character as a woman and then they may have rewritten some of the dialogue where they just changed like him to her yeah. and stuff like that but that that friendship and that dynamic that they have that's supposed to be like war buddy types or, or just you know both ex-soldiers just hanging out and i think it works really really well and it kind of helps 
soften some of the misogynistic edges that you sometimes catch in a Walter Hill flick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think Amy Madigan, you know, her character is 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 obviously McCoy. Uh, like say she's an ex-soldier. I like the conversation where Cody says, "So what do you do in the army?" He just says. I just like to shoot things. That's it, you know. <laughs> That's the only reason why I joined up. Um, but I, I could have easily seen her be the main character in this movie as well. As much as I love Cody um, in this movie, I could have seen her be the, you know, the res- the main rescuer. You know, it could have been the story of McCoy. Um, and I think that's at the same time it's very progressive for the eighties as well to have this strong female. Uh, lead character who really kicks ass in this film and let's face it she's she's the one who points the gun straight in um raven's face you know she's straight in william there, defoe you know? william defoe that's it yeah, yeah. um and like i say the, 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 like i say we get into this conversation this movie every time i think about it i think there's just so many avenues you could have gone down um it also feels like a kind of blueprint of a comic book movie of good versus evil uh, William Defoe comes across as a Joker type character. It's like the best sort of. He's 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 one of the best villains out there, and I could have easily seen him play the Joker as well. And he just he's got that sort of menace about him in this film. Yeah, when he is wearing those weird like hip waiter sort of leather, almost bondagey jumpsuit <laughs> outfit that where yes. the straps cover his yes. nipples, but like the whole top half of his chest is open. <laughs> But like, when he's wearing that outfit walking through Torchy's club and then he goes into that room where Ellen Aim is, they hold for a moment where he takes this look at Diane Lane as Ellen Aim and he looks at her in a way that I hope I never have anyone look at me. Oh, yeah. Like, like yeah. Where, where she's just like, she's like property and almost like a plate of a really nice roast that he's about to just devour. And it's like really lecherous and gross and creepy and I just feel really uncomfortable the entire time William Defoe's on screen mm-hmm. in this film he's like only 29 and he already has villain down like it's nothing like yeah. he's he's already done he's over with being a villain he's that freaking good in this movie yeah it's funny because I'm glad you mentioned that scene because if you if you was going to ask me if you say look RJ wait what did you invite me on to this show that's all about Streets of Fire I was going to say well it was because of uh, William Defoe's uh, leather dungarees uh, flicking his nipples and I just thought well I've got to get caught sights onto this show <laughs> <laughs> just to talk about that scene alone you know <laughs> <laughs> so when you think of leather greasers in bondage, you think of Corsair. Yeah, Makes well, sense. you know, I've listened to this show long enough with Matt, so <laughs> <laughs> I could have just done a three minute and thirty second episode. Hello, Court. Cool. Let's talk about Streets of Fire. Yeah, we're in the foes dungarees. Yep, that's all we need to say. That's it, guys. Check this movie out. We'll see you later. Keep it bite size. Keep it safe. <laughs> well, and I- I also want to talk about like Cody's little intro that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he walks into the diner whenever he shows up after being told that you know his sister needs him, and he's yeah. sitting there getting ready to drink a cup of coffee. And those guys come in, and they like there's this other greaser crew in this like souped up little coop, and they're acting like they're all hard and they're gonna do something. The guy pulls out a butterfly knife, and Cody slaps him like two or three times takes the knife out of his hand opens it closes it slaps him two or three times shoves the knife back into his hand and and then says that sucks try it again or something yeah. like that where he like just totally belittles the guy it's i mean it's, it's the most, <laughs> he it's, doesn't even punch the first guy he just slaps him <laughs> so hard he knocks him out 
It's the most badass thing. I don't think I've ever seen that in any other movie either, where he's taken the knife off the guy and said, look, man, just take that again and do it again. You know, it's just, oh, it's just, it's such a great introduction to the Cody character as well. Um, because right there and then, you just, you know what this guy's all about. And then he goes proper, you could almost go 8-bit uh, video game, which is obviously, which we'll get into in a minute, where... There is a legacy with this film where you've got uh, games like The Final Fight and I think it's Streets of Rage. And you look at this scene right here yeah, now and you yeah. think, yes, okay, I get that. This is definitely, you could go straight into 8-bit or 16-bit mode now. Cody's there, you know, he's got his you know, bit of wood that he's flinging around. And uh, yeah, love it. Love this scene. One of my favourite scenes from the movie. Chucks him through the window. <laughs> <laughs> Tony rips him apart. As he was doing that, yeah, he, before he throws the last guy out, my wife actually said, "Hey, he actually missed a pain." And then he threw the guy through it right as she was saying it, and I was like, "And?" And she goes, "Ha! It looks like he got them all." Yeah, oh. that's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So yeah, I mean, like I say, we're, we're introduced there to our, our character, but like I say, he, like I say, Cody is the the main hero in this movie but it's all about the other characters around him isn't it i think um was it billy fish that's played by um rick moranis and i felt like this was a different role for him compared to what i was used to seeing him say like ghostbusters you know where he kind of plays a bit of a i don't know a bit of a buffoon doesn't he but in this he plays a bit of an asshole doesn't he and uh it kind of works for him in a way oh he's a He's like the biggest freaking asshole in this movie. You really, really hate this character, Fish. Yeah. And it's weird to see Rick Moranis like this because he's always at least an amiable luck hmm. of a guy. Sometimes he's like this brilliant but sort of, you know, wacky and just, you know, awkward kind of character. But you never see him play like this confident, cocky, head short little shit that you just want to watch somebody slap the shit out of. By the time Lee Ving decks him by the end of the movie, you cheer <laughs> Lee Ving on for just that one moment. Where you're like, yes, finally, somebody shot him the hell up. <laughs> yeah, suddenly it's become Lee Ving's movie, isn't it? You know, at the beginning of this yeah. movie, you could say, at the beginning of this film, when I saw Rick Manis, and I saw Lee Ving, I just want Lee Ving to kick his ass. And then at the end of the film, you go, yes, <laughs> yes, done. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, they're about the same height, so it makes sense for leaving to lot like knock him out. Because even Cody says to him, you know, the problem with you, fish, is kicking the shit out of you wouldn't even be fair or satisfying. Yeah. That's the pr only problem. He's literally like saying the only reason that I'm not kicking the shit out of you is because it's so damn easy. It wouldn't be any fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing with this film. There's so many lines like that. I think there's where Billy Fish he he pays this guy for some information, doesn't he, about um, Raven's town. And he gives this guy some money. He goes, here, here's, here's 10 bucks. Go and buy some soap and have a wash or something. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, he purposely talks down to people that he really doesn't need to. And he doesn't realize that when they're paying that guy off, they're not paying him for the information. They're paying him to shut the fuck up and not double cross them. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like here's your money. Just go away and be quiet so we can go rescue Ellen from Torchies, right? <laughs> oh, man. And let's talk about torches for a moment. You know, I mean, that's kind of... Uh, it, it, you kind of flip between... You you know this film set... It's an 80s movie, but it's got an aesthetic of 
the fifties, isn't it? And like it, like you said, you've got Stim, Jim Steinman soundtrack. It sort of goes from different places, and then you go to Torchies, and it's got like a sort of a little bit of a green sort of tinge to it. It's got a real mood to it. Um, and at the beginning of this movie, it says you know it's set in a different time, a different place, and it, you really feel like you're in some sort of it's almost like a sort of Alice in Wonderland movie at the same time. It's got a real sort of magic. Well, they do to say it. pretty much right right off the bat. They do say like right at the start of it, um, they give you the title Streets of Fire, and then right after that, the next title card says a rock and roll fable or a rock and roll fairy tale. Yeah, and that's very much what it is. Uh, there's so much to this that uh, we were, we're kind of hinting at it, and I'll just kind of dig in a little bit. The plot line of them going to rescue Ellen and then bring her back, that is very much like the story of the Warriors where it's a bunch of soldiers trapped behind enemy lines trying to bop their way or fight their way back, you know, catching trains, catching buses, doing whatever they can to get out when they can and trying to stay low and fight their way out. That's, you know, Walter Hill's already done that masterfully with the Warriors. He mixes a little bit of that in here, too. It has a little bit of some 48 Hours flair where a ragtag crew of people that don't even really like each other are sent on a mission to get something done to beat the bad guys. You know, that's how it just kind of gets started, where Fish hires him and Cody kicks ass and basically does what he needs to do. Cody's very much the Walter Hill prototype anti-hero character. Because, like, Nick Nolte's character is always a scumbag piece of crap in both of the 48 Hours yeah, movies. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. He's never right. a good person. He no. always treats everybody like crap. <laughs> and uh, Cody's... I think what they're trying to do with Cody is, and it, I think it's probably before even PTSD was really known and what they could mm -hmm. put a name on it. That when, like, back when they still called it Shell Shock in the 80s. And it seems to me like Cody's character is very much that like PTSD style or or suffering a uh, former soldier but he's doing it in silence where he's just so grizzled and so full of shit with uh his macho ego that he just internalizes all of his pain and everything that's wrong with him and how he feels and the only way he can let it out is with violence which is why he's so good at it because it's a cathartic moment for him you know slapping a guy around and then knocking him out with one slap does a lot more for him than sitting around in a basement talking about his feelings with other vets. Like yeah. he just doesn't want to deal. <laughs> and I think uh, Amy Madigan's character of McCoy says it best when they're walking and she's talking with uh, Cody's sister and, you know, Reva. And he's, she says something along the lines of, there are some people that don't show how they feel because they feel so deep. It hurts too much to ad admit that, you know, because they feel deeper than everybody else. So they lock them all up. And then there's some people that, don't have any feeling or don't show any feelings because they just have no feelings at all. And I think she's kind of given fish some shit for saying that he's actually a sociopath. And at least what Cody's doing is he's hiding how he feels because he really feels that deeply. And he, she thinks that, you know, fish is like, like this completely uncaring, unfeeling person. And I think that's what she's doing is comparing the two of them to Reva saying, don't worry, Cody's got this because he does feel something for Ellen, even though he's hiding it. And Fish clearly does not, because Fish wasn't even really willing to go until Cody forced him. Cody's like, you're going no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's just, it's more layers of stuff to kind of consider there. Yeah, he's completely underrest, isn't he, in this movie, in the old Billy Fish. Um, but yeah, like you say, at the same time, you've got some... And I always like that in the movie, and I think it's a good point that you brought up with Walter Hill, is when you look at his films, you've got the long riders who are outlaws... Um, kind of like anti-heroes in that movie, uh, whichever way you want to look at that. Same as the Warriors, 
Um, they're anti-heroes. I mean, Swan, you know, whichever way you want to take him, you're, you're kind of rooting for him because they are dealing with something which is a little bit more... Um, don't want to say nasty. I wouldn't say the Warriors are as nasty. Well, maybe one of them, one of them is. Um, but it's very clever how Water heals. I think he did the same when I watched um, Southern Comfort. Those soldiers in that movie were pretty much assholes. Do you know what I mean? But it's a, it's quite a good point that you've made here. When you look at Water Hills movies, they, they kind of are borderline assholes dealing with something which is a little bit worse than they are. <laughs> it's it's very it's a very clever mechanic. I don't. I'm sure that Water Hill was possibly done this on purpose with his storytelling um, as much as Carpenter does with his a lot of his characters are kind of like archetypical guys who've kind of had enough of the system so um, yeah it's it's clever writing these these films aren't just thrown together are they I think there's a little bit more thought that's put into them which I which is probably my draw today when I look at them well and you wouldn't really have a person like Cody who literally just kicks ass and takes names for money because he says i'm good at one thing i know what i'm doing yeah and i get paid to do it or i don't do it at all mm. and you know that kind of very mercenary attitude is gonna be a very specific type of person the thing that i think hill does really really well is he has his characters always end up having a moral crisis where they make a decision that what they were the reasons they were going to do the right thing were not the right reasons and eventually they actually end up doing the right thing for the right reason yeah i mean we see that with nick Nol nick nolte's character in another 48 hours and 48 hours whenever reggie's finally done what he's supposed to do and it's time for nick nolte's character to actually keep his word he kind of does well he does it in his own way where like he does keep a hold of the car but he like kept it you know yeah <laughs> in <laughs> in like one garage getting like covered in dust and nobody doing anything with it <laughs> you know he does keep the money for him but he ends up losing it a lot like gambling but he keeps giving ious and stuff like that um and you do see that with with cody's character and i think that's one of the things that draws walter hill to these types of stories is he loves these i mean very flawed almost every single one of them are like ronan like ronan samurai especially cody in this film mm. this could very easily have been like a, a hidden fortress style oh yeah you know where the town yeah. asks this ronin soldier to go do this thing that they need to do and you know save the day and there's a lot of that where when cody's doing what it is that he needs to do for ass kicking or taking names or plotting out these these like various assaults on these fortresses it very much feels like those kind of kurosawa samurai films or just the japanese made samurai films from just a few years earlier which yeah. were influenced by the spaghetti westerns which were influenced by the regular westerns so you just kind of have this through line coming and i think the comic book aspect of the way that they do this it gives it this hyper reality and all the characters feel very much especially this movie feels very much like a dc vertigo comic of the time yeah where it's like hyper realized and everything seems like it, it, it's like the 80s just turned up to 11 where it just makes everything feel like, you know, end stage capitalism. People are starving for no reason other than they need scarcity just to be able to make more money with the resources that they have. And the only people that are really like doing OK are all the people that are in this very controlled, 
very Jim Steinman <laughs> world with all of these heavy tracks where they all play their role and they all make this music and they're going to get this money because that's all that's left is distracting people from this miserable end stage capitalism world that they live in. It's like the 50s just became America <laughs> and like, everybody else got left behind. And, you know, there's just there's nobody left except for like maybe a few small business owners that are making ends meet and nobody can really get a job or keep a job or make any money. You know, there's a few bartenders here and there like uh, Bill Paxton's character who's doing somewhat OK, but, <laughs> yes. you know, they're still having to take a lot of shit. And for some reason, there's like these feudal areas, like all these different di districts and uh, where the bombers live is something completely different than where Cody grew up. And there's like this turf war thing where they do handle things like feudal states in Japan that you've seen, like where it's like the whole entire village comes together with the samurai swords to fend off these rogue ninja clan, which is what the bombers are. They're like a rogue ninja clan that has their their own territory and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's very deeply layered in all of these various mythologies and world building, and it's all hinted at and just kind of displayed right there in front of you with various uh you know, just various visual cues, which Walter Hill is really good at doing. He can just hint at all of these different types of uh, things that, you know, human humans do, like these various human behaviors where we get together in groups and form like these feudal states to try and protect each other and keep each other fed. And, you know, these really, really harsh times. And you could draw these direct correlations to all these different cinematic influences or comic book influences. And it all comes together so beautifully. And yeah. I just don't know any other filmmaker other than Hill that could do that, you know, with this kind of material. And it may not work for everybody. I, I know that this film mostly got ignored. Like, mostly people didn't even realize that it was a thing. The biggest thing to come out of this film was I Can Dream About You, the song, from the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was, I think that's uh, what kept this movie alive. Uh, uh, which I was quite surprised, because I think that was by Corey Hart, who had a number 10 hit, and I think he made the most money in 1984 out of that song with this movie. And I think, the, you know, Walter Hill was, God damn, you know, I've made this movie and you've released that song. You made more money than I have, you know, um, which is a shame, which I found out the other day when I was walking around the supermarket and all of a sudden that song came on when I was walking around with a shopping trolley. And I thought, oh my God, this is a goddamn Streets of Fire song in the supermarket. What the hell? <laughs> I suddenly yeah, got all I excited. Everybody you know? at some point in time has heard that song and not even known no. you know that it was anything about this movie but as soon as it comes up in the movie it just fits in this world so perfectly because of course that group stinging along with Ellen Aim that helped rescue her just so happened to be some of the most talented singers that they could find in a doo-wop group and they immediately get folded into her band at the end and then we see that those Jim Steinman heavy tracks get even heavier and it fills out the sound in such a way that by the end, Ellen Aim is back stronger than ever, and the attackers are just that much more. And now she has like 55 people in her band instead of just 50. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is it. Um, and, you know, talking about that song, that's the way this film can go, isn't it? Because you've got, one minute you've got this, um, as you said, it's like a sort of social commentary. You've got the, I'm glad you mentioned the Hidden Fortress. Because I was talking about that again, because I recently spoke about um, Pirates of the Caribbean, and I thought there's a similar sort of story there, where you've got like Will Turner and Captain Jack Sparrow. Captain Jack Sparrow is kind of like the Cody character in this movie, as much as um, he is the type of Han Solo type character, do you know what I mean? He's a good guy, 
He's a good guy somewhere, but he's kind of in it for himself. And he'll come back and like. He's Cody gonna do the him. right thing for the wrong reason. That's the that's the Han Solo hidden fortress. Uh, Cody from 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 Streets of Fire type character. They're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, and you think it's for the money. And I mean, even Han Solo in the first movie, he thinks he's going to get paid like a whole group of money from the rebellion for for doing this, and that's the only reason that he's doing it. He doesn't care about any no. of these people. And yeah, it's it's perfect. Like he's the rogue Ronin samurai that's just doing it for the pay. And you know, let's just you know, let's mention this now. Let's bring a bit of Star Wars into this. When Han Solo turned up in the New Hope, it was, it was supposed to be all about Luke Skywalker. And I'll just use this for an example. Old Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill's turned up. Hey, I'm the hero. And more people were interested in these types of characters. The ones that, you know, are they going to be there for you or not? And they just seem more like the interesting type of characters on screen to me. And I think that's why people love the old spaghetti westerns, as you mentioned, with Clint Eastwood, you know. He's that interesting character. He's playing the two off, you know, the two sides off, and he's going to get that done in the end. And it's interesting how there's a character, there's a bloke in this who turns up. He's an actor, uh, Peter Jason, who turns up in John Carpenter movies. I think he was in They Live. And he turns up with a police officer. <laughs> he's like, but he's in it for a buck as well, isn't he? Yeah, oh, just give me a few more notes and I'll, I'll turn the other way, like. But then Cody even goes yeah, out. Then he double crops. He double crosses them anyway, and he decides, yeah. you know, yeah. But no, you guys are paying us off too easy. We're keeping the money. You're still getting arrested. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Cody just goes out and goes, "Oh fuck this shit!" He's he's got his rifle. And he starts blowing up all the police cars as well. <laughs> it's like so. There's. You well, know, it, oh. If you get that sensation with Cody too, where it's almost like in the Billy Jack films, like. The, the flawed hero who literally just loves destroying shit. Like, Cody is really in his element whenever explosions are go going on around him. People are getting shot, and he's just kicking ass and taking names. Like, this is where Cody's world belongs. Yeah. And he was trying to do the right thing by the cops, where he's like, oh, look, I don't have to embarrass all of y'all and kick the living shit out of you with just a shotgun and, you know, a bus. Like, I don't have to do this. You know, you guys, we don't have to have it go this way. But then the cops decide that it's going to go this way. Cody's like, all right, fine. And he's, like, <laughs> he almost he almost sighs where he's like, Ugh, I got to kick more ass. And then he just deals on all of them like it's nothing. It's it's just so interesting to see that kind of character who is just so good at this and just so over it. And I think the reason why we gravitate towards these kind of characters is they're very much us. Yeah. Like, you know, we're all complicated individuals. No yeah. one is 100% good. No, no one is 100% evil. We're, we're all, we've got multiple layers to us. You know, like we, we all screw up. We're all individuals. And when you can kind of see a character like that, you know, like the perfect, uh, you know, grade A, just super boy that, you know, Boy Scout kind of characters like Superman or even Captain America, where they're always like the moral high ground on everything. They kind of great on someone like me, you know, where they're like, oh, yes, I know I'll never be perfect like you, Cap. Thanks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I could watch like I could, you know, like a Tony Stark kind of character or any of the other guys that are like deeply flawed. They have a bunch of different issues that they're trying to deal with and they want to do the right thing. But at the same time, they keep getting dragged into doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Like those are the kind of comic book characters. And that's why I mentioned the DC Vertigo, because a lot of that kind of stuff in the 80s, that was really some of the first stuff where the characters are getting hooked on heroin or they're doing like these bad things and yet they're still trying to be super and do the right thing at the end of the day. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, like it's that kind of stuff that really, really was where this movie lives, right? And I think that's why people like the uh, Snake Plissken type characters. You meant, you know, as you said, you know, these types of characters. They kind of, and I imagine that Cody's probably got the similar sort of backstory to uh, Snake Plissken. Um, there's something in the system that has made him go, no, go fuck yourself, because the system isn't working in this world. You know what I mean? For me to try and get things done, I've got to do it this way. And that's whether I come across either the law enforcement or the bad guys. But the funny thing is with this movie is that there's some really important lines that can you can just miss, but you think that is actually an important line. Because the police officer in... Richmond, the um, Richmond, yeah, yeah, it's their district or their feudal state that they're trying to defend their neighborhood. Their neighborhood, so I think they're just trying to get something back together again, some you know something on on the level. Um, but even the police officer in that town is—he's basically—he doesn't say, "Oh, that's Tom Cody." He doesn't call him a criminal. He says he's a badass, and I think that's quite important. What he says there—it means that. He's a bloke that we might have to call some, you know, upon if the shit goes down. And, you know, in the end of this movie, when uh, Raven turns up with his motorcycle game, I just love it when the the police officer says to Cody, he says, go kick his ass, you know. I need you to go and do that. <laughs> yeah, my I mean? plan went to shit. Yeah. Yeah, my plan went to shit. <laughs> go kick his ass. We need you. We need the bad guy. Yeah. With um, Bill Paxton pointing his rifle at... One of the good guys' heads, or whatever it is, by accident. They all got they all point their weapons, didn't they? You know. Um, but um, yeah, yeah and it was in that sequence when the whole uh, group of the Richmond get together, and you have all of these guys just show up with all of these rifles, and they're getting ready to defend mm. their their neighborhood, their town, whatever you want to call it. That was when I decided that this really felt more or like a sort of hidden forts like Japanese feudal state world where they all have their various fiefdoms and things that they have to protect. And it just so happens to be that these guys in the Richmond, you know, they they never really had to do anything because this neighborhood mostly got left alone. Yeah. And it was only whenever it, it was time for them all to get called up that, you know, they have this like sort of like makeshift militia in a neighborhood. I don't know how realistic that actually is that you would just get like 60 guys showing up with rifles all of a sudden. Like, you know, just from one bartender running around calling them all. But there is definitely that sense in American history that, like, neighborhoods stick together like that, particularly in inner cities where it's like, you know, you, you make sure you watch out for everybody. You may not like everybody, but you all live here, so this is your neighborhood and you protect it. Mm. And that's kind of the same, like I was talking about with the feudal states <laughs> that you can see in Rogue Samurai movies where, like, the whole village gets together because it's the village and they depend on each other. And if, you know, that farmer dies because of this raid, then we'll never get the likes of the potatoes again or, or whatever, you know, like they need to watch out for each other and protect each other. Otherwise it's going to greatly impact the whole village's life. And you really, it, you get that sense in this film, like through a lot of it. And, you know, even in the neighborhood, when they go raid torchies, there are some people that live there that are also like, well, this is where I live. You know, this, area so you just destroyed my neighborhood so it's no wonder that the entirety of the bombers you know because the, their whole their whole state got destroyed where they were living you know yeah like all their gas was ruined and everything it's no wonder that they're going to declare war on the guy from the richmond that did it and they're going to hold the whole of the richmond accountable for it it makes <laughs> sense a lot of the way the guys in uh oh 
in the oh, oh my head has just gone to shit today cool sorry uh, <laughs> oh, there's man. so much to talk about like, you're gonna wonder we're all over the place in this movie because oh. there's just so much stuff densely packed into this little rock and roll fairy tale and you just said it what's the name of uh, William Defoe's uh, uh, neighborhood there's two neighborhoods here it's really doing my nut <laughs> oh um yeah, they're in. Um, it's the Torchy's bar is like their main their main hangout. I think they they're the ones that run it. But it's like it's basically the, the equivalent of the Bowery, right? Like where they're living is where the punk rock clubs like CBGB in Max's Kansas City would have been. Oh my in God, New York yeah. at the time. But um, yeah, they, and they tend to drive ride around on very highly flammable motorcycles. That if you just shoot them once, they'll just go up like. They've just fully fucking armed up with TNT, you know, it's like, holy shit in hell. It's the most dangerous fucking motorcycle you drive in your life. <laughs> that one scene where he shoots that one tank while the motorcycle's going down the street popping a wheelie is one of the greatest action sequences. Yeah. Because the tank just explodes everywhere and the stuntman keeps the motorcycle upright until yeah. it loses speed. Yeah. It's so cool. And then he... Um, and then Cody bangs like a fuel dowels or something and then he shoots it and it blows up. And I love this scene as well because it's like uh, William Defoe comes out, the raven walks out, doesn't he, with his like dungarees. And he it's just great where he goes, finally I've met someone just as bad as I, I am, you know. And it's almost like that sort of portrayal. Someone who likes to play as rough as me. As me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. And he goes, I'm t- Tom Cody, pleased to meet you. And he goes, I'll be coming for you, Cody. And he goes, well, I'll be waiting for you. And I'll just think, oh, my God almighty. I'm just fucking... (laughs) Just give me me a stir in a wonderful place that has just seen that scene. And I was like, how the fucking hell have I not seen this film before when I first watched it? Oh, man. It's just fucking amazing. Yeah, all it takes is once. You're either a huge fan or you absolutely hate it. But when this film gets its hooks in you yeah. all it takes is once and then you're gonna you're gonna love it ever since yeah and then uh, there's little sequences as well where cody's he's got his trench coat on he's got his rifle on the front bars of the motorcycle and he's just riding this bike and there's just a nice little bit of music in the background he's just going um in this underpass there's like a nice sort of green haze at the night in night time and i just thought this is that's, that's just a great I don't know what it is. It's just like little scenes like that that just sort of tie in nicely. And yeah, they, like I say, I, kept, I, I know I said it before, there's a lot more to this film than kind of meets the eye. It's like the director and the producer haven't just thrown a film together. I think it's just very, it's very well put together and well, very well thought of. Um, particularly as we've mentioned already it's, with it's the characters. A- yeah, it's a visually world building in a mm. way that he hasn't really done since the Warriors. Because when you see a when you see a like a gang that is coming for the Warriors in the Warriors, everything you need to know about that gang, their modus of operandi, and just how crazy they are, you know the minute they appear. Like the Baseball Furies, when you see them, like you know they're trouble and they're just psychotic and they're just looking to hurt people because they're all painted up and looking weird and they're not even trying to blend in. Mm. Whereas like. The gang that's on roller skates in the subway, they're just trying to get mobile and they run up and down the subways on the roller skates. And they're nowhere near as scary as the baseball furies, you know. It, it's just everything you need to know you, you get from whenever you see these folks. Like the bombers, they're clearly this weird S&M greaser gang that 
you know, lives inside my my brain, like the kind of folks yeah, that yeah, I yeah, yeah, would have yeah, hung yeah. out with. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and everything you need to know about them, everything that makes you like uncomfortable about them is all right there the minute that they show up. They walk into the concert to kidnap Ellen and you get a sense of who they are just by their outfits and the way that they move like a military operation all dressed in really, really bondagey black leather outfits for yeah. riding their bikes. <laughs> um, and the other thing I was going to say about this was... Oh. Like I say, my head, it's just, it's exploding at the moment with um, uh, Streets of Fire. Um, I, I think it has le left a legacy. I think uh, certainly, oh, what's that movie with, um, oh, Bruce Willis. It's kind of like a sort of animated uh, style movie that came out in the 2000s. I think it was Sin City that came out. Uh, yeah, Robert Rodriguez, uh, Rodriguez uh, yeah. directed and lensed with uh, Frank Miller. See, that's uh, Frank Miller's comic books. Sin City is what that is based on. And the noir aspect that exists in Sin City is definitely here. It's a noir comic book mixed in with like a Japanese Ronin samurai style story. And somehow they make it work. Like I, none of these elements should work together the way that they do with Streets of Fire, but somehow it all just comes together into a smoothie of awesome. Yeah, and like I say, Robert Rodriguez, I'm sure that perhaps he's seen this movie, I'm not sure, but I could definitely see him possibly remaking a movie like this as well. He'd be the type of director today that I would definitely say have a go at it. Not that, at the same time, I don't really think this film ever needs a remake because it's just perfect where it is. And that was the other thing I was going to say about Streets of Fire. It doesn't really, for me, it doesn't really age at all uh, it, it's uh, because I think we're fetishing we fetished the 80s in the last oh, 10 years and it's uh, it's just um, and again because it's set in a, another time another place it just it's, it's a timeless movie for me I don't know if you're aware of this or not but uh, there was actually a sort of unauthorized sequel Two oh, yeah. Streets of Fire named Road to Hell uh -huh. that uh, Albert Pune made in like their early 20, I think it was like 2008-ish, like right before the 2010s. And I don't know if this would ever really get released anywhere that you can see it. I don't know how you're going to get your hands on it, but it's a continuing story um, where it even has Michael Perry and he's playing Tom Cody. And like even his sister shows up in it as well. And I'd be remiss if I don't mention it because it's more built upon that that same world of, of what we're getting yes yeah. so i wanted to mention that that exists although i again i have no idea how anybody would would see that and i totally get what you're saying about how sin city could have had this influence and i also feel like the 90s uh, batman movies too like gotham really feels yeah. like the city or like especially the tim burton gotham uh -huh. feels very much like the city that we see here in in streets of fire and that's when i was telling my wife about it and like trying to see if i could get her to watch it i was like imagine a gotham city without a batman yes. and the people just found a way to make it work and they're defending themselves and like they have deals with the criminals to have a certain area and they just stay there and it, it works out yeah and i'm glad you mentioned um batman is because 
I see um, William Defoe's character Raven and Cody. I can certainly see Cody as a Batman type character and Raven as, as a Joker. In like you say, Gotham City without them wearing the you know, without Raven wearing the makeup and Cody wearing the Batman outfit, but they've got the same type of thing because I think Batman himself is kind of like a screwed up character himself, which kind of Burton touches on in the eighty nine version, which I spoke to about with Dan. Um, and there's a bit in the 89 Batman where the Joker turns up and it's when he's with um, Kim Bassinger and he shoots um, Michael Keaton but there's a bit when the Joker turns up and he looks at him and he goes finally I've kind of found someone who's kind of screwed up the same as I am without seeing him in the Batman suit you know and I think it's very clever and uh, I know we've hit on this already you know Talk, talk about this just just a minute or two ago but it, we keep coming back to the same thing with this movie isn't it it's like uh raven and cody they're very similar just as much as the joker and batman are very similar but they've got to try and somehow they like toying with each other or one's got to control the other um which is you know it, it's a clever mechanic in the movie and I, I i enjoy watching that on screen yeah, I think what you're talking about is the archetype of the anti-hero and the sort of almost anti-villain where Raven's character is really fucking gross. Mm. He's really skeezy. He's really unsettling. But he's got this certain swagger and this charm to him where he's unapologetically that way. And it, it has a certain appeal where you're like, man, if I could just be that free to where I could cut loose and just do yeah whatever the hell i want like raven where there's a certain appeal to it mm. but then you see the tom cody side of it where it's like he's so much more violence than raven he's filled with so much more hate and yeah. rage than raven and i would almost admit like submit to you guys the listeners and then also for you here rj that tom cody is more of a bad guy than anyone else in this film <laughs> yeah, it just right, so yeah. happens that he's yeah. doing the right thing yeah. for the wrong reason at the yeah. start and it's when he does the right thing for the right reason and not taking the money where he sort of becomes a hero, but he still just goes away. Yeah. I mean, there's there's three different points in this film that my wife got like 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 had sort of serious, very visceral reactions to the film. There's the one where the last pane of glass is still there and she just kind of like jokingly said, well, he missed one and then he threw a guy through it right there. Yeah. And then she laughed. Then there's the sequence when it's coming up to the end of the movie and he's got the final showdown with Raven and he knows that the only way to get Ellen out is to make it to where she can't argue with him. So he just takes the simplest solution, which is to clock her one and yeah, knock her out, exactly. which is extremely yeah. violent, extremely yeah. brutal. And it's so shocking and out of nowhere that right after he hit her like that, my wife just went, what the fuck? Yeah. Well, that fucker like because that's just it was just that quick and it's it's domestic violence and is raw yeah like he just fucking clocks her one and it's and it's literally like and i was trying to explain it to bev i'm like he's just being really pragmatic here like it's wrong yes he absolutely should not hit her but instead of trying to talk her into going with amy madigan's character and instead of having mccoy try and like stop her or hold her back so that he can go back into the city and you know take on raven and the bombers and get this over with he just does the easiest and simplest solution for him and he's like if she's unconscious she won't argue and he knocks her out like it's a very practical thing there's no real malice to that you know and i think they could have had him chloroform her but we got to remember cody is much worse than anyone else yep it just so it. happens that yep. he's always 
just held back just a little bit from doing the violence that he needs to do. So his practical solution is this abhorrent violence because that's the character he is. And the writers for this have stuck to that character as well because him doing the chloroform just wouldn't be his character, would it? I don't think, like you just said, they've just stuck to this character. Um, I, like I say, I was just as shocked when I saw it as much as your wife was, and I didn't, don't, don't agree with that method at all. But it, it was his character in this movie. Um, and like I say, in the end, he's, he's trying to save her. It, that was his intention, I think, ultimately, well, obviously was. Um, but the other thing I was going to say right, here and is... It, it, yeah. could be, it could be just the age of the film, like, to where, like, maybe in the 80s people would be like, oh, well, he had to knock her out, okay, whatever, you yeah. know, when they first saw it. And it could just be Walter Hill being like, well, this is Tom Cody, he's not the good guy, and of course he's going to, you know, have this little bout of domestic violence with someone that he loves to protect him. You yeah. know, like, that's... But it's it really establishes... That Cody is not a good guy. He's no. just doing the right thing at this particular time. Yeah, he, he is quite. He is an asshole, isn't he? Like you say, um, like anti-hero. But the other thing I was going to say as well is you touched on it with the. It's interesting how you mentioned Tony Stark and the DC universe, or even Marvel, is how I could actually see characters from other Walter Hill movies. Or even John Carpenter movies, like doing Assemble. So could you imagine uh, Tom Cody, Snake Plissken, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know they've got to turn, you know, it's like the <laughs> John Carpenter. Like Warhill a dirty character. dozen of exploitation films. Yeah, they've all turned <laughs> up to, you know, save the world. And, you know, you can imagine all these characters in this, in this one room together. Uh, you've got the warriors that have turned up. Tom Cody's turned up. A couple of the the uh, National Guard guys have turned up, and uh, yeah, they've all been tasked to go and do something. You know, <laughs> Nick Nolte's cop. You know, it's like it'd be interesting to see how these characters would all work well oh, yeah. together. You know, yeah. I actually, I don't disagree with you at all. There's, I really got a sense, and it was something that kind of watching it this time around, I was really thinking about there the sequences where everything is happening in this uh, movie to sort of like establish the world and bring you into it as like Cody's coming back after Ellen gets kidnapped and everything. This world very much could have, you know, Reggie and uh, Nick Nolte's character from another 48 hours. They could be wandering around in here. Like yeah. they, it's almost the same world. It's just that this is more of a music oriented, like the country bar that they bust up could very well be on the edge of the, like the Richmond. Like it, it feels very much like, the same city and some of the characters that they interact with and some of the worlds that they interact with in the musical part of it you could very much see lightning hopkins being around playing you know after he does his tour with willie brown from uh <laughs> yes yeah exactly yeah you know from, right. from that walter hill film you, you know from from the crossroads like you know right after right after they win the battle with the devil and willie soul gets back and lightning gets off on his own career it's almost like lightning's music because it's the same guitarist Ry coder that did all the lightning's music is basically playing you know cody's favorite music that's always on the radio the you know the, when, when cody's around like his themes feel like the, that just happens to be the type of music that he oh likes, yeah yeah know? yeah because he he does have a theme doesn't he when he's on the um when he's on the uh tube or the train coming in doesn't it it's it's quite good yeah it's, it's yeah he's got coding. his own theme that, that yeah. comes in and the the blasters or the the bombers world with the blasters playing you know their their blue shadow and uh Oh, uh, that's one, right, yeah. one mean stud or whatever yeah. that song is yeah. like 
that world very much like I could totally see in another 48 hours or 48 hours, like the bikers that they have to take on in another 48 hours. That seems like the kind of bar that they would have gotten introduced in as well. So that's one of the things that's really interesting about Streets of Fire is while it has this very otherworldly fable and fairy tale feel to it, it's still so gritty and realistic that it very well could be any of these other Walter Hill movies that are supposed to take place in the real world. And the way that the elevated trains work and all that battle works and everything, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the same universe. This is just the Chicago world of where the Warriors takes place as well. You know, like the Warriors was very much oriented around New York, but you could see like a syndicate in Chicago that, you know, (laughs) that they that Cyrus was trying to work with to where they could overtake two cities at once. You know, like it's totally fits. Everything mm. feels like yeah. a whole universe that could yeah. be this expanded Walter Hill verse. Yeah. And it's the one thing I've noticed when I think I mentioned this before on my show. I think it was the Marvel Universe that just had the idea to be able to say, let's amalgamate all these characters together. Well, obviously, Stan Lee did in his comics, you know, let's, you know, let's do some tie overs here. And yeah, certainly would have loved to see a tie over. And, you know, as you mentioned, the Warriors. I, the more times I've watched this movie, the more times I thought it was set 1970s. Um, is it New York it's based in? Um, Coney, is it Coney Island? That's where. That? Yeah, yeah Coney Island, New York for the Warriors. And this film very much is Chicago. Chicago. Like the, all the elevated trains and they're they're underground, all of these various like highway bridges and things. Mm. And they're taking all these underground back, back roads. This is very much supposed to be a Chicago. Yeah, and you know it's another time, another place, and what for I've, streets of fire for streets of fire, um, which is I've having looked at the Warriors a few times now and looked into it because we have the glorious internet where we have inf- you know access to information. Is that I never knew that Walt Hill actually based it's it's not actually in the seventies. It's supposed to be like in the future or something like that with the Warriors. Um, so it could be that they are in another time and another place with Streets of Fire, just like you say. Um, what's going on? This is what's going on in New York, and this is what's going on in Chicago. You know, so <laughs> um, yeah, like it could yeah. even be happening within the same couple of days. You know, yeah. like where both cities are just racked with all of this stuff, and then, you, like I said, you really could picture where you know Nick Nolte's stuff going on in another forty-eight hours than. than or like a Los Angeles, you know, like yeah. world or a Los Angeles city. So you could very easily see like as erupt in Chicago as neighborhood Richmond, blah, 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 Burns, uh, suspects at large, Cody, blah, 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 you know, McCoy. Yeah. You, know, you could see them popping up in like on like a news report in the background. You could totally picture that happening. Yeah. In I'm- a 48 hours or another 48 hours as Nick Nolte's character is getting drunk on the job. You could totally see that. <laughs> yeah. With... Uh- Eddie Murphy in the bar going, I have had a very bad day. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, <laughs> someone's trying to kill me. There's a new me. sheriff yeah. town, Haas. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I've been shot out. I've been in a bus that's turned around multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, right, I'd love to right. see that. Like, while Eddie Murphy's having that meltdown, you know, yeah. in that scene in 48 Hours, we're, we're seeing reports of, like, you know, this entire city of New York sacked by, you know, gang warfare. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it ends it ends with, like, even, like, Coney Island and all that. You can see that news report while he's freaking out. And then the next minute they're sitting down trying to get their shit together and it comes on the radio stuff that Tom Cody is doing in Chicago. Like, 
his worlds do feel that dense. Like everything's all yeah. going on at yeah. once. At least, at least to me, that's what I always got with Walter Hill. Is it like it feels like it's all this same rock and roll fable, like this world that we just kind of enter into where it's all connected. Like he's always had that sense to me. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to see what his backstory is, Walter Hill. Um, I'll probably need to look into that a little bit more to see where he's getting these ideas from, or he's pro- possibly from his childhood or something like that. Same as, you know, I always mention Carpenter because I think Walter Hill and Carpenter, there's very similar sort of directors. Um, get the impression they're guys that kind of just want to tell the story that's going on in their head. And um, they, they do, you know, even though, like I say, these films are made in the 70s and 80s, they do age very well with the times that we are going into to now it's almost as if they're kind of just sort of foreseeing the future a little bit <laughs> in a funny sort of way um but going on to the music again because obviously as this film closes there's a song that i can never get away from i listen to it all the time and it is tonight is what it means to be young i mean hell of a, hell of a song <laughs> which i play multiple times in my car when i'm driving and i never seem to get fed up with it yeah, Jim Steinman seems to have a way to activate multiple areas of your pleasure centers with his music, mm. mostly because of how heavy his tracks are layered in there. Everything he does feels so operatic and so epic, and you just get swept up in it, where it's almost like this whirlwind of sound that just hits you. Yeah. And it either lifts you up or or it beats you down in such a way to where you just start weeping. And it's it's not an experience for everything for everyone because Jim Steinman's music can be extremely intense because it's just so packed and so dense. And sometimes it hits people and they just go no and they react very violently in the other direction and they just really dislike it. But the people that really get into it and really love that that feeling like that just overwhelming sensation because there's no track of his that ever feels thin. No. Everything Steinman has ever done just feels so intense and so epic that sometimes that just doesn't appeal to people. I mean, it totally does for me. It works. Yeah. I can't listen to that song tonight is what it means to be young and not start getting a little choked up. Mm. You know, like, cause yeah. you can, you can, I can feel my youth slipping past me whenever yeah. that song plays now. You know, like it, it really, I'm just like, wow, I'm old. It's done. It's over with. Because. <laughs> Because this feeling that I have right now, I, like I forgot it until that song is playing, and he's totally right. This is what it means to feel young. Yeah. Is that epic moment where it's like the whole world you could just grab it and just be back in control again, and like nothing, nothing can take you down. Yeah, like that's that feeling that that song gives you, and then then you realize that you don't feel like that anymore, and the song's kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh damn! This is it's, it's brought me up and it's totally taken me down at the same time. <laughs> it's goddamn song. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's what Steinman yeah. does though. Yeah. Like that's really like his music is just that epic that it gives you all these complex feelings and emotions. And I just don't think a lot of people that dislike Jim Steinman's work are prepared for that. No, because like they're not prepared for that that landscape of emotion. I think it's a song that kind of bookends itself as well in its six minute length time as much as it bookends this movie as well because you've got the um, song at the beginning and uh, which it, which starts off and then you've got this song at the end, but also the connection to the song as you just said it kind of chokes you up is because you've got that tie between Cody and Ellen Aim, isn't it? Where Cody comes out of probably one of the it's almost like a sort of Jack Burton moment from Big Trouble in Little China, where he's, he's rescued, you know, he's, he's 
he's got the girl at the end of the day, isn't he? And she's she's obviously pleading her love to him, and he's basically comes out with this line saying, you know, you're going places, and I'm not the sort of guy to be carrying your guitar guitar cases around. You know, you mean what the hell? <laughs> but it's yeah, I I guess it's very clever how they've just sort of ended it like that. Cody he's done what he's he's done what he's needed to do, and then. It's almost like the sort of cowboy getting onto his horse and riding off into the sunset. Well, and also the Ronin samurai that yeah. has always given an option to stay. I mean, we've seen Walter Hill do this much later on when he did Last Man Standing in 1990. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Five, six, yeah. somewhere around there. I mean, that is, I can't remember the actual uh, Yojimbo. It's basically his version of Yojimbo. Mm. So this is definitely something that he's aware of and that he's he was working in. Uh, he was very obviously influenced by those samurai films in some way, shape, or form from Kurosawa. But, like, I, I mean, I just, like, it never was that obvious with me for this movie until watching it now after watching some of the baby cart films. And then also on, on my show, I, I did some of the uh, Pinku Aiga, Pinky Violence style Ronin samurai films with <laughs> the yeah. female Yakuza tail and Sex yeah. and Fury and then Lady Snowblood and uh, Lady Snowblood too. Um, but, like, these uh th these films they have a very specific kind of technique where they the the warrior always turns from the path of domestication and and normal life and while Ellen would be doing this stuff on tour he obviously would not be just carrying her cases he could take Fish's place so much better and shake people down for money and all that he just wouldn't be able to do the business stuff he could be with Ellen and they could still be doing this tour and doing the money and everything but. What he's essentially saying is he can't have that normal life. He can't have that kind of love in his life because that part of him is already gone. Yeah. It's it's been destroyed. Like he's now just this killing machine. And he knows that. And he's not gonna make Ellen happy. He's not gonna be able to give Ellen love and support and all of that. And I think this is kind of misconstrued because there's like multiple endings that they just kind of try here where Cody just wants to leave. And he says goodbye to Fish, and you get the sensation that he just wants to duck out and, and go and just not even deal with Ellen and just let her be because if he hurts her and she stops worrying about her, stops caring about him, then it's over with and, and he's done the right thing to protect her. Or at least that's how I interpret it. Yeah. Because he needs to protect her from him because he's a violent, awful human being and he knows it. You know, like that's the way that I interpret it. And that sequence where he's walking away after telling Fish, you know, say goodbye to Ellen for me. My wife actually reacted where she's like, that son of a bitch, he's just going to leave her again? <laughs> like, that was like, she just blurted it out. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, Cody is not a good guy. No. And he knows it. Like, I think this is the right, he's doing the right thing the wrong way here. Mm. Where the right thing is to get out of Ellen's life because he's not going to make her happy. He's just going to make her miserable. There's just going to be misery on this. And they'll at least have this one moment where right before her show, he did the right thing. He saved her life. They had passion. They had love again. They they made love for whoever knows how long. But <laughs> he's not the right fit for her. He totally isn't. He's not yeah. going to give her the life that she deserves. Yeah. And Cody loves her enough. And this is my interpretation. I fully admit it. But Cody loves her enough to know that all he's going to do is give her misery. And the best thing that he can do to make her life good is to not be in it. Yeah. And if he just Absolutely. leaves. And that's what he's saying. He's like, if yeah. you need somebody for anything, I'll be there. Yeah. 
but I'm not the guy to be there for you every day of your life and supporting and loving. But the next time a bunch of psychotic, like, S&M greaser bikers kidnap you. I'll be there because I'm Tom motherfucking Cody. Oh, yeah, and that's it, what yeah. I'm here for, Alan. And, I, and, I, and I'll love you. But you you got fish to give you the life that you want and the kind of love and support that you need. And that's not the guy that Cody is. And when I tried to explain that, I'm like, he is a bad guy and he knows he's going to do what's wrong. That's not that, that doesn't sit well with other people as well. Like, but that's very much the Ronan Samurai I think. Like you see that in the baby cart series quite a bit where someone offers uh, the main character a life, you know, where they can raise the son and he can come off this pathway to hell and vengeance that he's on being a Ronin samurai. And he turns away from it almost every time because this is the path that they're on now. And he's only going to bring misery to the people that he stays in their lives for too long. And that extends even, and I'm, I'm bringing this up obviously, but that's what Mando is in the Mandalorian, you yes, know, yeah, exactly, Dungeon, yeah. that's exactly yeah. who he is he needs that fight like he's got that much rage and that anger yeah. in him and when he gives up grogu to be raised by luke at the the spoiler alert everybody in the the end of that second season it's because he knows that grogu is going to become a bad person if he stays with him yes he's going to be bad yeah. yeah he's a horrible influence but he's a great rescuer and a, a great person to keep you alive but you need someone with compassion and a bunch of things that he doesn't have to take care of it and it's it's the same kind of archetype that we've been talking about as, yep. as far as an anti-hero goes and it's that moment when cody leaves her it's that moment when uh mando leaves rogu it's that moment when the samurai walks away from a possibility of a peaceful life that could possibly make him happy and trick him into stop killing that they are actually the hero and I'm going to bring this back to one more uh, bite-sized uh, cinema classic that, that we all love to talk about. And that's going to be with The Unforgiven. Because that movie starts with a man who made the wrong decision and stayed with a woman who loved him. Oh, because yeah. even though he yeah. was going to bring her nothing but misery. And that's what Clint Eastwood's character is like. And he's living with the repercussions, the children that he has and the, the world that he has. He's living with that as that movie starts. But he's the bad guy. And he's the guy that should have done the right thing and walked away from that woman when he had the chance. But now all he has is this misery that he's created in her life. Like there are certain characters that are anti-heroes because they are doomed. They are meant to just walk this path of violence and misery. Yeah. And when they try to step away from that, that's when you get things like Unforgiven is what I'm getting at. Like that's that archetype, you know? Which again, let's they're alone gunmen, yeah. they're alone swordsmen for a reason, right? Yeah, this is it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. And this is interesting where this film goes to, isn't it? Bringing up, and again, it goes back to the samurai movies as well, doesn't it? Um, like the Sergio Leone, Unforgiven. Um, it's like you say, it's a very good example using that movie, Unforgiven, because that's ultimately, like as you just said, that's where Cody could end up or ultimately would do but like you say the best thing they can do is love in a way to say look I'm best not be with you and then he does walk away and I'm glad you brought up the Mandalorian as well because that is you know it's the same thing and I think even you know Tom Cody has a little wince of a tear in his eye thinking damn I wish I could but I know I can't and I think you know again a spoiler I think Mando has that look in his eye as well doesn't he when he hands over Grugi um, he knows it, that, that's not the path that he's set for. But he's done his job. 
And uh, like I say, I do like that line where he says, you know, if you ever need something, I'll be here. Do you know, so <laughs> you ever want me to go and kick someone's ass? But I'm not ass. the guy to carry your guitars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, it's like, fucking hell, what a line. And I think it's very clever how that, that the movie bookends like that because a uh, little shout out to uh, Gav Chucky Still from um, Podcast on Haunted Hill because he's, he's, you know, he's a film director himself. He does all his independent stuff. And he explained the movie plot to me as in, as in, you know, basically a guy goes up the tree, spends a bit of time up there and then comes down. But something that happens at the beginning of the film happens at the end. And that's what you get here with this movie. And it's very clever and it's just really good way it closes up. And uh, yeah, what a rock and roll ride. It's just, as I said earlier, it's just a damn shame this film didn't do as well. But um, I think there is a following to this movie now. I think it's become got a little bit of cult status to it. Oh, I think it has more than a little bit of cult status to it. I think you, like I said, you watch it and sometimes you just kind of forget about it if you are inclined to. But the people that get it, Mm. we become kind of obsessive about it and we never forget it. We never stop talking about it. And we always want someone else to check it out. Mm. And when you find somebody else that gets into it just as much as you, it's (laughs) just that great feeling. It's the ultimate in cult films, you know. Sit down and watch this fucking movie. Trust me, you're going to like it. Here's Tom Cody. Watch him kick some ass. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, there you go, Cool. I think we've probably shown this movie the love and, you know, attention that it needs on this episode today. Um, Is there anything else you want to cover with uh, Streets of Fire which you think we haven't touched on? No, I think I've gotten just about everything that I need to, to discuss. I mean, we really kind of... We went there on a lot of this stuff, but uh, yeah, the rogue samurai or rogue lone gunman Western aspect of things, the way that those two cross over is definitely a very heavily influenced thing in Walter yes. Hill's world. Yeah. Like, like he's very good at doing that. But this film feels more like a rogue samurai than a lone gunman Western because there's a lot of like, especially the way that the feudal states are set up and everything like that. It's not him rolling into one specific town. It's him traveling through all of these various different realms. Yeah. You know, these various feudal states. So uh, I, I, I'm i actually not shocked at all that uh, he went, Walter Hill later on went on to do, like, redo his own version of Yojimbo, I think is what yeah. uh, Last Man Standing is. And it just so makes sense. And um, I would say that if you really dug what he did here with Streets of Fire check out last man standing and it's like his crack at yojimbo done in like a 1930s gangster film and i think you would really dig that too and that's another one of his films that i think a lot of people slept on and overlooked but i think it's time for us to go back and take a look at it and give last man standing a shot yeah i think it's just a time one of these films for whatever reason maybe last man standing came out of time where people just didn't get it but what i noticed with these films is they at some point these films people do get it don't you, you see like a little <laughs> resurgence uh, <I laughs> little shout out to Derek Bourgeois but he, he reviewed Killdozer didn't he recently and now everybody's watching that movie <laughs> so he, you never know sometimes you know <laughs> yeah that's that's really all it takes is for the right person well, to say hey I love this movie you should check this out and that's the thing that's great about being a film fanatic is we all kind of give stuff a shot because yeah. we all know whenever someone else that has a similar taste to us is like, oh, yeah, so this, this, and this happens. Yeah. 
we they know how to sell the film like being told that a giant you know bulldozer comes to life and becomes like this weird killing machine because of some strange alien power you know right away whether or not you want to watch that movie and most movie fanatics are like hell yeah i mean let's do that yeah it's it's, <laughs> it's suddenly it, the, the bulldozer has just come on to legion podcast because i've noticed a little bit of a resurgence of that movie and i've noticed that a few times on there where we're all like hey check out this movie and then all of a sudden we're all talking about this one movie um Maybe there's hope for Battlefield Earth with John Travolta. I don't know whether that film might get his day. <laughs> I saw that film in theaters when it came out as a kid. I did. Yeah. Oof. I haven't. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if Battlefield Earth really kind of deserves that kind of obsessive cult status. Like I could give you Waterworld, and I could give you like Kevin Costner's The Postman, but yeah. Battlefield Earth, I don't know, man. Like I, I'm kind of hesitant to yeah. go back and try and visit that and find anything to love, my man. <laughs> oh yeah, this is it. I, I'll, I'll, I'll chuck in Ghost of Mars in there for John Carpenter as well. You know what I mean? It's I'm the biggest well, ch- <laughs> Ghost of Mars. Ghost. Ghost of Mars, I feel like, deserves another chance from someone, too. I think someone should go back and just give Ghost of Mars, like, like stop going into it, like, trying to get what you thought you were going to get from Ghost of Mars mm. and just go into it for what it is and just ab- absorb it. Like, Ghost of Mars and Vampires, both, I think people were not expecting a Western with a sci-fi twist for uh, Ghost of Mars and then a Western with a horror twist for Vampires. Like, there's a lot of folks that really kind of reacted negatively to those two films and i think you just have to go into it and realize that you're watching a western it just so happens to be either taking place on mars or slaughtering vampires in the desert one of the two yeah I, I <laughs> like that mean, era of carpenter is all about the western <laughs> oh man yeah i mean uh, uh, vampires is probably another good example of getting an asshole to go and kill someone who else, else is vicious you know because of the you know james Wood, wood's character in that movie is you know it's a and different just James what's in real life well uh, yeah <laughs> I, I, yeah yeah i've heard that yeah i've heard that i mentioned a lot so um but yeah these 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 are good conversations to have in terms of that sort of archetypical type uh character but there you go but i think who who would have thought we'd end up with battlefield earth at the end of this movie <laughs> you know well we're talking about we're talking about movies that weren't appreciated in their time and would eventually mm. become cult classics but i just i can see where folks that would like that movie would want to get that movie to that same kind of status of hey we, everybody should give that another shot yeah i just don't know if i'm willing to do it <laughs> <laughs> that's all i'm saying my man. Yeah. Uh, oh well well what i'll do then cool is i think we'll end it on that that night because i always think <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> Yeah, fucking but everybody room. check out Streets of Fire for sure yeah. and give some Walter Hill movies some love. <laughs> and uh, all the movies that we mentioned that could be in the same universe for Walter Hill, watch them all together and kind of see if you agree or disagree. I actually would like to hear from your audience if they could feel that Walter Hill universe in those yeah, movies. Like absolutely. Yeah. Streets of Fire, uh, Warriors, and um, both the 48 Hours movies. And is there another Walter Hill movie that you feel like should be sandwiched in with that same realm of the Walter Hill? Hillverse, where they could all be in the same cities, or all these different cities at the same time, like New York, Chicago, and LA and stuff. <laughs> I think there was a, there was a, there was a Sylvester Stallone movie they did, was it Bullet to the Head or something like that, wasn't it? <laughs> 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 
I don't remember that one off the top of my head, but yeah, maybe that could uh, be in the same universe. I'm not I'm, sure. Just throwing that yeah, one in I'm now. Curious. Yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, Chuck Sylvester Stallone in there as well. But ah, there you go. Well, <laughs> thanks, Court. Thanks for coming on to the show today. It's always, you know, it's always an absolute ball when you come on the show, and we really should do it more often. Um, but yeah, man, it's great. Yeah, and I'll have to set the proper alarm to wake up right for you uh, so I don't hose yeah, you next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talking about your um, show, um, Cinema Psyops, with you and Matt, I mean, you're up to, was it three, 300 episodes on there now? I think, or have you already celebrated that? Or you're about to? Uh, we have that recorded. That's yeah. in the can. And as of this recording, I will be releasing it the day that you and I are recording this. So right. by the time this episode of Bite Size Cinema comes out, I would assume that our 300 is already released. Yeah, that's 300 consecutive weeks oh, of always man. recording something yeah. new every week. Uh, even if it's uh, just something that I had to improvise or just do like a music show or something, I've recorded something new pretty much every Monday and then had it released pretty much the following Sunday. Some days we pushed it a little bit to where we were a day or two late, but every week consecutively for the last 300 weeks, we've had some kind of a new content show out there. Man, Not like, you know, repurposed or clip show or anything like that. That's some good going, man. Do you know what I mean? That is, you know, getting up to that, uh, the 300 mark, you know. So, um, but I, I just saw that you you, you did, is it Bruno Matai? <laughs> well, you hit 100 in half the time we did. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. I mean, like I say, I, I got Ricky Morgan to thank for that because... I kind of fell into the podcast world. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to do it or not because Bricky Morgan said, "Hey, hey, RJ, you know you should, you should be podcasting." I was like, "Nah, nah, I don't think so, Rick. I'll just listen. Love, love being involved, listening and posting on, you know, on the Legion page and all that." And he, he contacted me four times, and eventually I went, "Okay, I'll come on." And then all of a sudden, I got a taste for it. Um, and before I knew I was like up to 100, you know, I was like, what the hell? How the hell have I done this? You know, <laughs> it's crazy. I love it. Rick, Ricky, uh, Ricky has that effect on us. Like there's been a couple of times when I'm like, you know, maybe I'm going to start cutting back and I'm going to stop doing as many shows as what I've been doing. Yeah. And then I talked to Ricky for about 10, 15 minutes. And the next thing I know, I'm energized to go for another 100 yeah. some odd weeks consecutively. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it happens. Uh, he has that effect on you, Rick. So yeah, he he said that he, I am the the monster that he's created or something like that. So yeah, <laughs> 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 going to pay for this. So. Oh dear. All right, and uh, cool. Well, listen, as I said, mate, it's, it's been an absolute ball. Um, we'll get get back onto a, another episode, something you want to do again in the future on bite size. I know you spoke about Texas Chainsaw Massacre two. Was it? I think you put that one out to me. Uh, yeah, that's um, my favorite in the series. Even oh. though I absolutely love the first one, uh, uh, it's kind of hard to enjoy the first one because it's really dark and really foreboding. And Texas Chainsaw 2 dumped all of the horror aspect of things and just went for over-the-top 80s gore and grew. Yeah. And that soundtrack alone is something worth talking about because that makes that movie. Yeah, oh. And I'm actually going to be reviewing that uh, on my show because we're for our full franchise fest starting at 300. We're doing a comparative thing where we're going to do all of the Te Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, including the remakes. Uh, in, right. Okay. We're going to do 
We're going to do that whole full franchise fest, and then we're going to start, we're going to go from that directly into the Phantasm films. So oh, what we're doing wow. is, like, because wow. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre goes downhill fast mm. <laughs> with, oh, its, yeah. with its sequels and, and the remakes oh, and all of that kind of stuff. And, oh, yeah. And my my thing that I'm trying to show everybody or the thing that I'm trying, like, the, the experiment that I'm trying to do here is the Phantasm series, like, completely loses money as it goes. Mm-hmm. The budgets get lower and lower, and the movies get more and more ambitious and more and more entertaining as far as I'm concerned. Not necessarily <laughs> better just more and more entertaining and i really like the improvement of the stories and the expanding of the universe and i'd like to compare and contrast the two series because we got five films with phantasm and like eight films i think with the texas chainsaw massacre and all the remakes and everything and it just goes to show you that that when you keep trying to do the variations on the theme you can either do it one way that works effectively like phantasm or you can just keep going back to the well and trying to rehash like texas chainsaw and it just doesn't quite work yeah that was kind of my idea for closing out year five Reggie Bannister first in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> oh dear. Be another toy I would Versus Bill Mosley, basically. Oh yeah, basically. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh well, look forward to that, Colt. Uh, your take on that and Phantasm. You know, I know Ricky Morgan's a big fan of that movie as well. There's certain films I. It's a bit like when I hear Lucio Fulci. I think of Rick. Do you know what I mean? Some Italian film director. You know, it's like you know. <laughs> Well, it's safe to think of me when you think of Lucio Fulci as well, because I am a huge Fulci fanatic. Yeah. Um, the podcast that I do probably wouldn't exist if I wouldn't have made Matt watch Zombie and that scene where the lady gets her eye poked out by the zombie pulling oh, her through right, that yeah. slatted door that broke. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like, like Matt's overreaction to that is what made this show happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in uh this has suddenly become the Ricky Morgan po- podcast. <laughs> so, what, did Rick, what did Rick say this week? But when I, he, he made me laugh when he came on to do Prince of Darkness with um, Dan Bone came on board as well. And he, he just comes out with some stuff. It just makes me laugh. It's just magic. And he, I said, so what did you think of Prince of Darkness? And Ricky said, yeah, well, I immediately thought I was watching the Lucio Fulci movie. <laughs> it's like, fucking <laughs> <getting> brilliant. <laughs> That's Ricky Morgan all day long. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I can see that influence yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so there we go. All roads lead to Ricky Morgan. <laughs> the end of the Streets of Fire episode. Oh dear! <laughs> it's oh. his podcasting universe, just like Walter Hill's world. We're just living in it. Yeah, this is it, man. That's it. All right, uh, cool. So, uh, like I say, thanks for coming on the show, mate. I've had a blast. Um, I feel like I need to go and wash myself down now. <laughs> yeah i'm all hot and bothered too man that's a good Uh, place to end it (laughs) go outside and mow your lawn (laughs) might as well oh dear all right guys well hope you enjoyed this episode and as we said if you haven't seen streets of fire please go and check it out and uh, let us know if you enjoyed it um for a little bit of admin for the show i'm a proud member of the legion podcast such as uh Court Psyopses, so please go and check out his show as well, Cinema Psyops, which is about to reach episode 300. Um, also, you can find the show on iTunes and Spotify and several other players. Um, if you put in Bite Size Cinema Podcast into the internet, take you somewhere. Uh, I've also got another show called the Mystery Vault Podcast, um, so go and check that out where I talk about mysteries and unexplained and all that type of stuff. And I've got a Facebook page where I'm most active as well, so um, hit us up with any comments or any films that you want me to take a look at. 
And uh, as always, guys, uh, keep it bite-sized, keep it safe, and we'll see you soon. this show then make sure you check out the other great shows on the legion podcast network like cinema psyops cinema beef devour the podcast duncan and Bo come correct exploding heads horror movie podcast friday the 13th get slayed the hell Ming power hour hello this is the doom show hero hero ghost show kill the cast underwater kaiju from outer space jerry hates action legion after dark metal health obsessive cinema discourse Pick Six Movies, The Podcast by the Cemetery, The Podcast on Haunted Hill, The Psycho Semantic Podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found.